You are listening to Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs. Genodermatosis, I think most of us, when we see the word genodermatosis, we kind of freak out um, because uh, they are confusing and they're always new ones and they seem to have really long names and we're not sure we're ever going to see them. Um, when in reality, there are a couple of them that you actually probably will see. And again, this is where we are the gateway into the medical um, system to kind of look at the skin and say, this is abnormal, I know that it's a thing, and I should make sure that they see a geneticist um, uh, or potentially a pediatric dermatologist if you have questions about the skin specifically. Um, so the goal is to review all of the cutaneous genetic diseases. That would literally be impossible. Um, the problem with uh, medicine is that there's more stuff every day. So you know, learn it all now and take whatever board exam you have to take and, and um, hope that they don't invent any new things. Um, this is what most people look like when they look from to, at uh, genodermatosis as an idea. Um, and I put this kid up here on purpose, actually, um, because when you look at children and you're not sure whether they have a genetic disease, look and see whether they look like both of the parents. I have to be a little socially appropriate like this just to make sure it's not the milkman who's the dad. But anyway, if, you, um, if they don't look like the parents and they look a little bit odd or a little bit funky, they may have a genetic syndrome. So you look at this child, he's really cute, he's got spaghetti all over his face, but his eyes are a little bit widespread, his head is a little bit big, his forehead is a little bit big, and with that you're kind of suspecting that there may have been something that genetically went on with him um, that's maybe affecting other places. So uh, again, the skin is often a marker um, that uh, uh, genetic syndrome may have happened. The picture's not here. That's so cool. There's, it's impossible to answer a question with no picture. So I'm just going to show you the picture now. Um, so a nevus anemicus is something that's a fairly rare lesion. When you look at children, uh, you often don't see a nevus anemicus. But if you do see it, it's actually a pretty good marker for neurofibromatosis. So we think about cafe au lait as good markers for neurofibromatosis, but a nevus anemicus, which is actually much less common, uh, um, can be a really good marker of one also. So how do you diagnose this nevus anemicus? It looks like the white patch that you can't um, uh, necessarily highlight with a woods light. And if you rub the edges with alcohol, like you rub it with an alcohol pad, the edges will kind of turn red and get a little bit inflamed because the vascularity there is getting inflamed. Um, but the white part actually won't do anything. So it kind of stays vasoconstricted. So why is this important? It's important because it's a rare lesion and most of the rest of the, of the kind of uh, medical world won't know what a nevus anemicus is, and this is a marker of NF1, so you want to look out for the other features of NF1. So what are the other features of NF1? They're going to be things that you see on a lot of kids, but you're going to see more of them on children with NF1. Um, so when you look at cafe au lait and NF1, they tend to be really smooth, and they have um, really nice smooth margins, and they tend to look like little ovals or little circles. And that differentiates them from a lot of other things that look brown in the skin. And as you can see, because I bolded it, um, there are a lot of things that happen in the skin first that will show up to us um, in dermatology before they're showing up to other practitioners. So six or more cafe au lait is a marker of neurofibromatosis, two or more neurofibromas, but they actually usually show up a little bit later. Freckling in the axilla and the groin or um, axillary inguinal freckling tends to also show up really early. And then often children will actually have a big head. So if you're seeing them in the, in, at six months or eight months or 12 months, you can often see the cafe au lait, you can usually see the freckling, and they will often still have a big head by that time. Those are things that are concerning and you wanna get them genetically tested. 
There may or may not be a relative with NF1 because many of the NF1 diagnoses are actually new mutations where the parents don't have it, it wasn't passed down, um, the child just got it as a new mutation. You really want to send them to ophthalmology to make sure they don't have a glioma. Um, and then you also want to uh, make sure that they don't have the kind of bony lesions and they can have high blood pressure from uh, um, renal artery stenosis or a pheochromocytoma. But again, we are the gateway into the medical system. You don't have to know everything about NF1. What you have to know is, I saw a kid who has a bunch of brown spots or have a nevus anemicus. I'm concerned about them. I'm going to get them plugged into the medical system. That no longer works. Cool. So anyway, to big dance if it's not this button. Oh, cool. Okay. So what do you do when you suspect NF1 testing? The testing actually goes to Alabama. Um, uh, there are other places that do it, but Alabama probably does it the best. Uh, and uh, they have a really nice website that can help you order the testing, an ophthalmology exam, check their blood pressure, and refer in um, to a geneticist. Cool. All right, so what is, that picture didn't show up either. That question's impossible to answer also, because um, there's no picture. So assuming you had this picture, what would you do with this child? Um, this is a child who has a brown patch across the entire abdomen. We see this all the time. We see kids who come in with a big patch of, of um, pigment in their skin. They either have darker pigment or lighter pigment in like one big patch. And the question is kind of when do you worry about them? And the reality is they're usually completely fine. There's usually nothing else wrong with them. Anecdotally, I see a lot of patients um, where the mom and dad have different skin colors and so their children often have different swaths of skin colors on them. I don't know whether that's kind of a little bit of mosaicism where you have like a little patch of dad or a little patch of mom, um, but the ones that you typically don't worry about are the ones that stop at the midline, the, they look like a big block of pigment. Um, it's not individual little cafe au laits. It's not uh, um, kind of multiple spots at the same time. So I'm gonna compare and contrast those with other patients. Um, so the kid on the left, you would worry a lot more about. It's much more widespread, it's thin lines of Blaschko, it's covering a much larger um, body surface area, and the mutation probably happened much more early in development. The child on the right has only a small piece of skin that's involved, and because there's only a small piece of skin, the mutation probably happened much later in development. So the one on the left is called um, pigmentary mosaicism. It used to go by the name linear and world nevoid hypermelanosis. That term is kind of phased out. But because the skin is formed by the same cells that form the brain and form the eyes, you want to worry about whether they could have seizures, they could have eye problems. Again, you want to have them see a geneticist and consider whether they have anything else developmental going on with them. The child on the right, again, has one block of pigment, has it very localized. It's unlikely that that mutation happened early in development. It's unlikely it's affecting other tissues. Um, this is another child with neurofibromatosis. One of the patches is a little bit bigger, but again, you have multiple patches. They're very oval when you look at them. They're kind of spread throughout the body. Um, and you have someone who is at much higher risk of NF1, again, comparing it to this one individual block of pigment on, on the left side of the screen. This is someone with McCune-Albright. So McCune-Albright is often what parents are really, um, or uh, practitioners are really worried about when they see patients with um, lots of brown pigment. And the difference here is that you have a much broader area and the margins are really, really jagged in the whole thing. And although this child may have nothing else wrong with them, um, this is at much higher risk of this McCune-Albright syndrome. 
So what are the associations with mucolonalbright? It's precocious puberty, having a bony abnormality called polyostatic fibrous dysplasia, and then other endocrinopathies happening in the same time. And again, the thing that's the warning sign is that you have a more, a more broad um, uh, area that's involved. There's often some on both sides of the body. And then the margins look like, quote unquote, the coast of Maine, where it looks like it's very jagged on the edge of it, um, instead of the smooth margins of neurofibromatosis. This is another one where you kind of want to think about it a little bit, because um, this person has the broad uh, patch of brown, and it's got a very thick uh, or a very um, clear midline cutoff. But as they get older, they start to develop nevi within it. And this is a giant nevus spilus or a speckled lentiginous nevus. And because it's a nevus, it has the same risks that other nevi have. There's a risk of melanoma in there. You have to follow it over time. If there's a lump or bump that grows inside of it, you definitely want to biopsy it. Whereas again, this brown patch has no risk to it. This is just extra pigment in the skin. When they're young, these can look identical to each other. So what I always tell people when there's a brown patch in the skin is, if you start seeing um, spots show up in it, then you need to come back so that we can reevaluate it. If it never changes, you don't have to come back, and that's completely fine. But if you start seeing moles pop into it, then it needs to be followed like a mole. All right, so this is another patient where we are going to be the people who are going to be making the diagnosis of when to worry. So this patient comes in and he has warts on his hands. And you, you look at his chief complaint and you're like, you have, a, you have warts, and that's fine. Except he has warts covering his entire um, tips of his fingers and both hands, and he has innumerable numbers of warts. And this may happen because he's wearing a baseball glove or he's um, doing something that's like making his hands hot and sweaty, and he's got warts that are really widespread. But it's up to us to look at them and say, this is really way at the end of the spectrum. You have way too many warts for me to be comfortable just saying that you have normal warts. Um, when you look at around at someone, you want to decide, do they have any other features that their immune system might not be working very well? If you have a ton of warts, perhaps your immune system isn't working well enough and you're not fighting them off, and that's why you have them kind of all over. Is there anyone in your family who has the same thing? Do you have any other kind of dysmorphic features? Anything else developmentally going wrong with you? So looking at this patient, you look all over, this is too many molluscum. So this actually happened to me this week. I had a, a girl who came into the office and she had atopic dermatitis. She had like seven or 800 molluscum on her. That's not okay. Like you can have 50 molluscum that's really annoying to the parents and molluscum tortures all of us. But if you have a ton of molluscum and you have like less normal skin than you do molluscum skin, there's something wrong with your immune system that's not normal. And you, you need to kind of think about whether they need to see an immunologist to kind of have their immune system evaluated. So this person, uh, on what you can see on your left, is uh, um, severe atopic dermatitis. They have many warts. They have different types of viral infections. Um, and this is a DOC8 mutation. This becomes clinically relevant in your eczema patients. If you have someone who's at way at the end of the spectrum, who has really severe eczema, has had multiple viral infections, is really hard to get under control, is really um, kind of failing to thrive, you want to think about a genetic mutation that's leading to both their eczema as well as immunodeficiency. Um, this fits within the same pathway of hyper-IgE syndrome, which is a STAT mutation. Um, this is the newer version of that called DOC8. Again, the details are less important than us acting as the, as the entry into the medical system to say, this is unusual, this is at the end of the spectrum, I know you need to be seeing someone else and having them um, be clarified by immunology. I'm not an immunologist, I don't do a lot of the immunologic testing, but I know an immunologist, I know how to use a phone, and I call them and I help them have them help my patient. 
Um, there are lots of other associations with this. These children often get pneumonias, they get staph infections, um, and they have a lot of the kind of atopic diseases, but again, it's way at the end of the spectrum. All right, so you've got someone who comes in with white patches. Uh, white patches are also really common. Um, my daughter has a white patch on her hip. Uh, she's got one patch. Uh, she's got theoretically nothing else wrong with her, except that she complains a little bit of, um, about homework, um, which I think is normal. Um, but uh, if you have multiple white patches, you have to start worrying about whether they might have a genetic reason for it because it's affecting multiple parts of your body, all right? So then you can kind of look around and you see this uh, forehead plaque that looks like a little bit of extra skin on there, like little lumpy bumpy on the skin, um, and you can put those two together. I'll tell you that if you're trying to make genetic diagnoses, um, I'll actually show you this in a later talk, you can actually use Google Scholar to make them and it's tremendously good at it. So if you put in white patches and like forehead plaque and maybe like bumps around the nose and you just like put those search terms into Google Scholar, it actually will often come up with the diagnosis for you. So if you have two unusual or three unusual things in the patient that's looking at you, like um, they have some really weird renal anomaly or they have some really weird lung thing and they have strange skin lesions, um, one of the best ways of diagnosing that is literally using Google as a tremendous um, uh, uh, huge database of the world. And Google Scholar just looks through uh, medical stuff and not just mom blogs, um, which are also useful but much less useful. Um, and uh, it filters through and it actually can find genetic diagnoses for you. So this patient also has little bumps around the nose. This is often confused for acne at first, um, but they're kind of heaped up bumps that are there. In lighter skin patients, this will show up in three, four, five-year-olds. In darker skin patients, because they have some sun protection, it'll actually show up in seven, eight, nine-year-olds um, because the, um, the reason that this is happening is because the sun is causing a second hit mutation. Um, and this patient uh, has tuberous sclerosis. So you put all these things together, you have white patches, you have a forehead plaque, you have bumps around the nose. Um, this is perfect for tuberous sclerosis. And again, a ton of the features are in the skin. You can get growths around the nails, you can get dental pits, you can get collagenomas. These are the things that are gonna be showing up to us first uh, when we look at them, and they may have no other signs that they have a genetic disease, but it's our job to get them kind of plugged into the medical system. Um, and a lot of these features, uh, again, are dermatologic. So we get them plugged in, they kind of go on and they see usually pulmonary and renal and genetics, uh, and based on what they find, they kind of end up followed by a lot of those people. Um, but there's a lot of things that kind of show up in the skin first. All right, I bolded all of them. Takes a while. Cool, all right. Um, so again, the workup is genetic testing. Genetic testing used to be kind of a little bit flawed where we'd send people to genetics and they might get an answer 60 or 70% of the time. It might cost $10,000 and it's kind of like hard to know whether you're finding what you need to find. Genetic testing is now phenomenal. Um, so for most genetic diseases that are well worked out, the testing is really highly accurate. Um, and if they can't get a diagnosis from genetic testing and there's enough wrong with a child, they'll just do whole exome sequencing where they'll look for any genetic thing wrong with the child um, and potentially get an answer from that. Even that nowadays costs $1,000. Um, checking a CBC and like a CMP to follow labs for something costs several hundred dollars uh, and is often um, uh, not as useful as doing something like genetic testing, which is a definitive diagnosis. 
again, we talked about serolimus before. Serolimus is really effective for the angiofibromas of tuberous sclerosis. Um, you can use anywhere from uh, 0.1, 0.2, up to 1% of it. What I tend to do is use 1% serolimus to kind of get them better, and then use a lower percentage of it to kind of maintain them after that. And I have children who use this for years. If the only thing that other children can see is the bumps around the nose, and you can take those away, these children can go to school and no one will have any idea they have a genetic diagnosis because most of the other stuff is hideable by clothing or is on the inside of the body. So it makes a huge social difference to these kids who can be very normal um, to have the bumps on their face be uh, um, treated. So what causes this birthmark? So this is extreme, but what it points to is kind of a developmental issue. So if you have a genetic mutation that starts when you're like just a sperm and an egg and they get together and you form like the first um, little zygote there, then it's gonna affect all of the tissues that, that um, uh, those cells end up creating and that affects the entire body. And so most genetic diseases were not able to be figured out because they don't actually affect, or a lot of the skin ones, they don't actually affect the entire set of skin. Over the last few years, they've been able to um, take cases of affected skin and look for the genetic diagnosis in those affected areas of skin, and that's really helpful. So this is a really huge nevus sebaceous, and the mutation happened very early, but not when it was gonna affect the entire body, because if it affected the entire body, the child would not live. Um, what do we do with nevus sebaceous? Um, if you can kind of picture if it was just one spot, if you had one spot of nevus sebaceous right here, um, they have a very low risk of skin cancer. So there's this reported risk of 5 to 15% out there for nevus sebaceous. That is not true. It is much lower than that. And although parents often want to remove them just for cosmetic reasons, you don't have to remove a nevus sebaceous if you don't want to. If they have one in the scalp that's kind of uh, hidden by the hair and the parents just want to keep it and follow it, that's totally totally fine, but remember they're made out of sebaceous glands. Sebaceous glands are gonna go through acne, and when you get a 12 or 13 year old who ha starts having their birthmark, like form acne and leak out a little bit of um, sebum, they really don't appreciate that, and often those children wish that they, it had been removed. So from a cosmetic standpoint, we often, uh, parents choose to remove them, um, but they don't have to do that. So this is postzygotic mutation. So essentially, the reason that you see all these kind of linear things in the skin and things that are affecting only some small part of the skin that are still genetic syndromes is because they happened when there were a bunch of cells already. So if you have a, a, some, an effect, an, a mutation that affects the zygote, it's going to affect the entire body. But if you're already a trillion cells big and the one cell has uh, a problem, then only a little bit of the body is actually going to be affected by that mutation. And then you can actually figure out whether to worry about people or not. So this mutation is pretty large on the face, so probably the cells that, have, that caused this mutation probably also helped form the brain or helped form the eye, which are the other ectodermal cells, and so you would wanna have them see a geneticist or see an ophthalmologist or consider seeing neurology um, to see whether there's anything else going on with them. So localized small nevus sebaceous are almost never a problem, but the really large ones probably um, happened early enough in development that they could have affected other tissues. So cutaneous mosaicism, you see these really pretty kind of lines in people's skin because you get these um, cells that are happening uh, or having mutations further along in development. There are all these different forms of lines of Blaschko, uh, and they can show up differently in the skin. So I'm just gonna go through a few that you may actually see. Um, this is porokeratotic and ectrine dermal duct nevus, or piodin. It tends to affect the hands or the feet um, on kind of coming up onto the arm. 
And it wasn't figured out until a couple of years ago, but this is actually the mosaic version of something called kid syndrome. Um, kid syndrome is a very widespread hyperkeratotic uh, disease where you often get alopecia, you can get recurrent candida infections, um, and, uh, and again, the localized version shows up with these just little lines in the skin. This is ILVIN, um, so inflammatory linear verrucous epidermal nevus. It kind of looks like psoriasis, except you can put anything you want on this and it does not work. I don't care about any of the reports of something saying that it worked for like a couple of days. Like everyone seems to put calcipatriene on everything and like magically it works for them. It never works for me. Um, and calcipatriene on ILVIN I've had very little success with also. Topical steroids don't work. Um, there's nothing topical that really helps Sylvan in my experience. And the reason for that was actually recently figured out, which is this is a mosaic version of a genetic skin disease. You're not going to fix a genetic skin disease with topical steroids or with um, uh, something like um, calcipatriene. So it makes sense, and it, it makes sense why they're hard to treat. Um, this is Anivis comedonicus. Anivis comedonicus is something where you just have a birthmark of mole, of, um, of, of comedones or um, acne. And essentially you can see this nice Blaschko's line of birthmark of acne. And there's a syndrome where you actually get really, really severe acne called Apert syndrome. Kids tend to have a little bit of dysmorphia to their face and they tend to have really, really severe acne. Um, and Nevis comedonicus is the localized postzygotic late in development version of this where basically this person's shoulder has Apert syndrome but the rest of their body doesn't. So a lot of these things get explained. This is actually treated really nicely with, um, uh, with um, retinoids. So if you use tretinoin or adapalene or tisaretine, it actually works really well for Nevis comedonicus. Um, um, but you're fighting a little uphill battle because it, again, it's genetically programmed. Um, this is another demonstration of kind of a genetic syndrome you may see. So this is um, what's put in the literature as Schimmelpenning syndrome or, ne or epidermal nevus syndrome or nevus sebaceous syndrome. Those are all basically the same thing. And interestingly, the mutation that causes nevus sebaceous and causes um, nevus spilus is the same mutation. And so you can see someone who has both things on their skin. They have a nevus sebaceous going up into their scalp. And again, because this is large, this is the child where you might want to think about having them get brain imaging or get eye imaging because they have a, a birthmark that's affecting a much larger part of their body. So big picture, big birthmarks affecting larger part of the body that are blashcoid. You want to think about whether they're affecting other tissues. The small ones often um, don't affect anything else. So this is again a big nevus sebaceous. It affects a much broader part of the scalp. It goes close to the eye. This is someone I would certainly have see ophthalmology and I would consider whether they need an MRI in order to follow them, uh, and then you can kind of uh, treat their nevus sebaceous uh, with surgery if the family wants to. Um, this is a nevus sebaceous that grew um, a, ring, a little syringocyst adenova papilliferum. It is giving you the finger. Um, literally, I looked at this, and it's like a little finger sticking up at you. So, um, But this um, people don't often show you a lot of skin disease that's in darker skin patients. And this is what a nevus sebaceous looks like in someone who has a little bit darker skin. And so because it's not yellow, it's very difficult to recognize. But it's the exact same thing. There's no hair in here by definition. You have little lumps and bumps that are in here, um, and then you can grow growths, and then eventually it will go through puberty and get little acne. Um, again, you don't have to remove these, but if you do remove them, then they um, decrease the risk of skin cancer very far, but the risk of skin cancer to begin with is very low. 
This is an epidermal nevus. Um, when you look at epidermal nevi, if you just saw these little um, tiny spots on here, they look like the seborrheic keratoses of children. Like if you walk into a room and you see a child with uh, seborrheic keratosis on their back, it's not a seborrheic keratosis literally ever. Um, but it is almost always a, a, um, an epidermal nevus. They look kind of stuck on, like they're little kind of warty gross. And if it's in a line, then it's usually kind of a larger epidermal nevus. Again, a localized one that's not very big, not associated with anything else. If you had this covering a much broader part of the body, then it might be associated with other um, uh, findings. Um, these also look a little bit like warts. If you have really recalcitrant warts that the parents have said have been there literally forever or in a line, that is an epidermal nevus. Not that you can't freeze it or you can't shave it off or do anything that you would do for warts, but the reality is that it's not gonna work nearly as well as for warts, which naturally will go away. Epidermal nevi wanna be there and they will stay there. There's a very rare form of epidermal nevus, which is caused by a specific mutation that can lead to um, uh, hypophosphatemic rickets, um, which is vitamin D deficiency. Uh, so just be aware of that association. So this is just a nice little chart that shows um, these kind of post-zygotic mutations and what they cause. This is the cause for giant congenital nevi. This is the cause for agmenated spitz nevi, nevus spilus. You basically get a mutation in the skin that doesn't happen super early, so it doesn't affect the entire body. It happens late, so it affects small areas, um, and it really helps for treatment in the future. So um, NF1 uh, associated with nevus anemicus, tuber sclerosis is another one that you will um, uh, may see during your career. And a lot of the birthmarks are actually post-zygotic versions of genodermatoses. Uh, and that really is gonna help guide therapy in the future. And it also helps explain um, when to worry or not. If you have a much broader mutation that affects a lot of skin, then you worry about them a lot. If it affects a very small swath of skin, then you worry about them much less. Cool, thank you. the overall performance of the speaker. Are you next? And are we doing all the questions at the end? No. How useful will this session be in your practice? As a result of this program, do you intend to change your patient care? Okay, how often am I monitoring nevus sebaceous? It depends on the family. So um, if I, if I um, see a family who's actually gonna care and gonna look at the spot and ever pay attention or like a super OCD parent, um, I'll often have them come back every couple of years or so. Um, and actually the time that they're most likely to change is after puberty. So when you're looking at them before puberty, they're almost certainly not gonna change. If I have a parent who was like, oh my gosh, I didn't know that thing was there and the child's like got it covered up with hair and no one's ever going to look at it, I might have them come back yearly for the first year or two just to kind of get the parents used to following it and then following every few years after that. Um, uh, any successful treatments for Ilvin? Do you guys have any successful treatments for Ilvin? Um, I do not. Um, I have failed with Ilvin. I think that um, probably CO2 laser would work, although it's really painful, but destroying the top of the skin probably would work. I have no data for that. Um, but I think you have to do somewhat destructive things because it really wants to be there. Um, and then sometimes they're just itchy and just actually taking away the itch is really effective for people. Uh, so topical steroids can kind of help with the itch. 
Um, Anevis anemicus versus Anevis depigmentosus, I think the easiest way to differentiate them is to take a black light. So Anevis anemicus has the same pigment in the skin, so a black light shouldn't hide it at, or uh, shouldn't highlight it at all, whereas Anevis depigmentosus gets highlighted with a black light. Again, Anevis anemicus, if you rub the edge of it or if you make the edge of it cold with an alcohol swab, that usually also kind of highlights the difference between the vasoconstricted skin and the non-vasoconstricted skin. Uh, adolescent with a very painful linear epidural nevus confined to the neck, pain even with hair blowing, past the lesions. Okay, so I actually think epidermal nevi respond fairly well to scissoring them off um, at the skin margin or taking a very, very um, uh, flat blade uh, and basically shaving them off at the margin. I would not do that to a really large lesion to start with because you don't know how people are gonna scar and you don't know what it's gonna look like. But if you take off a little bit of it that's painful or it's getting caught on necklaces or hair and they like how it is, then you can usually take off more of it. I had a girl who had her whole cheek as an epidermal nevus once um, and we basically sat there and very carefully kind of shaved it flat with the skin without trying to cause atrophy and knowing that some parts of it were going to grow back a little bit, you can kind of debulk it a little bit uh, and I've actually found that that's pretty successful. Um, what would you call those macular hypopigmented macules for a diagnosis when they don't mean anything? Um, I actually call those pigmentary mosaicism also. Um, so essentially they're little areas of skin that probably do have a genetic change that makes them look white, but it's not affecting the rest of the body. The term ash leaf macule, as soon as you put that in a chart, the pediatrician is going to freak out that the person has tuberous sclerosis. So you, as reassuring as you wanna be, if you tell the pediatrician that there's like one ash leaf macule, they are gonna be high alert that that patient has um, uh, a, um, a genetic disease. The other term that's used often is nevus depigmentosis. The problem with the term nevus depigmentosis is it implies that it's actually depigmented when it's actually not depigmented, it's just lighter pigmented. Uh, and so it gets really confusing in the literature, so. Cool, thank you. Next up, I think, is Sheila. You're gonna get sick of us by the end of the day. It's gonna be the three of us rotating for the rest of the day. This has been a presentation of Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs.